Hi, I'm Leslie Lepage, the director and founder of the La Femme International Film Festival, and this is a podcast for everyone who wants to know all the dirty little secrets that make Hollywood tick and creating content for film and television. This is a special podcast. What you're about to listen to is a dynamite panel on financing and getting your films financed from leading experts in the film and entertainment industry. This is a panel that we put on for La Femme International Film Festival in 2022. It's going to be split into two parts, so you're going to be listening to the first part with this dynamic group of financiers, people who have done it, and then next week you're going to listen to part two. So sit back, enjoy, put your ear pods in, and take a listen to these wonderful experts um, that are going to give you a lot of really great information on financing your films. Hi, thank you so much for joining us today for the independent um, financing panel. And we're going to talk a little bit about distribution. Uh, my name is Deborah Gillels. I am going to be the moderator. And to begin with, I'm going to start with everybody um, on the panel to introduce themselves and give a brief bio. So um, let's take it away. Hi, um, I'm Desiree Staples. I'm based here in Los Angeles. I'm an actress and producer doing specifically independent films right now. Uh, two previous films I've done are Take Me to Tarzana, and what I'll be talking about a bit today is a film that I produced and starred in called My Divorce Party and kind of how we got that off the ground. And I'm one of the presidents of NUA West, which is the Northwestern Entertainment Alliance on the West Coast. I think that's mostly me. <laughs> Hey everybody, I'm Jonathan Lipka. I am a executive producer at Other Animal Entertainment. I've uh, been doing distribution for years as well, independent distribution up in Canada. That's where we're from. Uh, our last two pictures, Happy Fucking Sunshine, was at Dances with Films. And our previous one, um, Poor Agnes, did a really big circuit globally, uh, very well reviewed. Horror film in 2017, I believe we released it. Um, and we're also looking at doing an AVOD platform and a number of other things uh, we're pushing out down the road. Uh, I finance a lot of projects. My background is both in owning and running cinema, uh, distribution, uh, a lot of different entrepreneurial things. And as you can see, I'm getting into other businesses like <coughs> merchandise. Well, they put you there, Dan. So why don't you go? Okay. Morning, everybody. I'm Dan Copeland. Every day without the possibility of parole. Um, <laughs> I uh, started making movies when I was 14 in high school and uh, haven't stopped yet. So uh, over the years, I've forgotten more about how to make a film than most people ever learn. Uh, I produced five feature films. Uh, the most recent one is called Eight Winds, starring Robert Davi, and that's available uh, on most of the streaming platforms in the U.S. and Canada at this point. Uh, I also produced a documentary, The Lost City of Cecil Beat Mill, also available on streaming. And uh, Growing Up Smith, also available uh, on streaming. Um, and in, in addition to being a filmmaker, I'm also a uh, writer, director, actor, producer, and lawyer, sometimes in that order. <laughs> okay. okay, Alyssa, you're next. Okay. Uh 
Hi, I am Alyssa Goodman. I am, like everybody else here, a bit of a hyphenate. Uh, I am a writer, director, producer, and distribution strategist. Uh, my greatest claim to fame as a producer is a film called The Cinderella Story that I had gotten developed and gotten set up at Warner Brothers. We packaged it, put a team together, and suddenly it became an overnight bidding war success, which was very exciting. And I've probably spent the last couple of years trying to reproduce that excitement. Um, but while I do that, I've been um, directing and writing. I've done some films for Mar Vista and some uh, streamer projects as well. Um, right now, I'm doing a little bit of distribution strategy, working with a couple of different clients, um, as well as executive producing for uh, other people and fundraising for my own stuff. I've been acquiring a lot of IP and have two books right now that I'm developing and probably a million other things that I'm not thinking of off the top of my head. But I will say one thing, I don't act and I'm not a lawyer. Uh, pretty much everything else is on the table. It's good to know. <laughs> anyway, I'm Deb Gillels, and I'm going to be the moderator today. I'm a board member at LaFemme. Um, I own a, a media consulting and public relations firm and do some distribution strategy with Alyssa. And um, I'm happy to be here today with you all. So I'm going to start with a question that's for everybody on the panel. So, you know, every one of you have recently made an indie film and, you know, can you let us know to begin with what was your fine, you know, your financing plan and why you chose that route? And since Alyssa, you're on the screen right now, we can start with you. Uh, yeah, um, you know, the film I know you're referring to, Deb, is uh, the standoff. That was a film that was completely 100% um, independently produced, developed, directed um, by myself and funded by a variety of relationships that came from mostly the cousins of the screenwriter, um, Lee Dunlap, who wrote a Cinderella story uh, for me. His cousins came in and said, hey, let's do this better than everybody else because we were getting frustrated with all the bad distribution deals and you know the lack of control that was coming from a studio and said, let's do this on our own. So we went out and put together sort of a friends and family scenario. And then after, you know, many years of me working in LA, I had a lot of relationships. So I got a lot of friends to do me some big favors and some very smart friends who knew what they were doing and put together a team. And we were able to make the entire movie uh, from start to finish based on the kindness of relatives. Um, that was probably one of the best scenarios and best experiences I've had. And kind of just to jump in for a quick sec, Deb, um, when it comes to finding your money, sometimes it always depends on what you look, you know, what you what you want in freedom. Um, since then, I've had a couple of movies, like I said, I've made for More Vista and some of the streamers. And those have been really great scenarios where I had projects in development and then took them someplace and had somebody else jump in with their money. And what I found in those instances is he who writes the check when it comes to that stuff is the boss. So it's not really independent film. And so for me, finding that friend's family opportunity was really the greatest 
um, sense of freedom in filmmaking that I've ever had. And as much as so many filmmakers come to me and say, hey, could you take this to so-and-so? Would you take this here? I, you know, I stop them and I say, well, what if we didn't do it that way and we had more freedom? And so for me, indie filmmaking is, like I said, the ultimate in freedom. And yes, having someone else write a check is also the ultimate in a different kind of freedom, but it puts a lot of limitations on you. In my case, as a writer and a director, that included when I wanted to fire an editor, I couldn't um, and wish I could have and should have. And, you know, some other things that, you know, the last movie I made didn't even they didn't even provide me with a script supervisor on set. So you, you're getting money, but you're giving up a lot for it. So if you've got those opportunities for friends and family, go for it. Jonathan? Uh, two completely different scenarios. So the last film we did, uh, Happy Fucking Sunshine, it was built on both soft money in Canada as well as private equity through the corporation and, and the different partners that we involved in it. Um, and we looked at it a, because our previous film I'd financed uh, top to bottom poor Agnes because I knew what the output was going to be on it. I believed in the script and I wanted to get the, the business set up and we needed to do a um, basically a proof of concept. So I felt comfortable and everybody else felt comfortable moving forward with building out how we want to do the business. So that said, we did take a lot of, um, we did bring down the first budget of the film. The first one we did very, very neatly, compactly designed the both worked with the writer as well as uh, everybody else involved to make sure the project could get off the ground properly. And then we went to do the second one. We wanted to build it a little more sophisticated project so we could all we use it both as a learning tool and also to really blow out the story as best as we can. The money, and we decided because we already had the track record of working with um, the North and working with the Northern Ontario uh, performers and crew, we thought we would go back and dip into that and see what we could do. That's how we built our soft money plan in uh, Ontario. And then on top of that, we stacked it obviously with the provincial, because um, that's the thing we do up here. We stack the provincial and the uh, federal tax credits and then utilize that with some of the other public funding bodies as well as private equity and put that together. And it really is, um, it really is a game of math of how you play all the different pieces uh, on the board to make sure you can maximize what you're putting on the screen. Um, but the compromises on that, the way that we did it, we had very little because it's the creative side, our team that was making the decisions on it. So we didn't have to compromise on what we were doing. The only ones we had to compromise on were, you know, how many locations we're going to be putting in, uh, how we're going to budget for the music, which was a nightmare on Happy Fucking Sunshine because a massive budget was going to the music and we had to balance that against the tax credit scenario which is based on the spend within canada so yeah it's uh again it's like a very sophisticated complicated strategy but once you kind of dial in where each of those pieces move on the board it becomes pretty obvious how the best route is and you do keep your control over the project for the first project uh i already had distribution concept set up and we already knew what we we're going to do we got a yes after the film was done uh, and the second film, we went in uh, with the idea of how it would come out, and then COVID landed and changed everything in the market. So we're still figuring it out. We have distribution next year um, with a fantastic company, and uh, hopefully that works out for us. We'll see. Yes. 
Yeah, so um, a little bit similar to what Alyssa was saying, my first projects before the features were all kind of self-funded, and which was great because we got uh, we had the freedom to do what we want, but those were kind of in, you know, the 20 grand kind of range for the pilots that I worked on that went to Tribeca um, and Dancing with Films and Fantasia. So when we wanted to level up for our first features, the first feature I worked on was Take Me to Tarzana. Big shout out to our director, writer, uh, Maceo Greenberg. And he had, found, yes, 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 who taught me everything I know. So I have to give him a big shout out. Um, he told me all about this equity crowdfunding platform called WeFunder. I don't know if the other panelists are familiar with it, but it was a great kind of step, stepping stone from the short content I was doing to a feature in the ultra low budget under 300K level. And so we used WeFunder for Take Me to Tarzana, and we raised around, I want to say, close to $200,000. And then for my divorce party, which was my latest project during COVID, where I went, okay, I think we can pull this off with five lead girls in Joshua Tree outdoor during this crazy time. We did another round, and we raised closer to $300,000, and I cannot recommend WeFunder enough. It was a full-time job raising money, as I think everyone on this panel knows, is a full-time job when you're doing it. Um, but it was really nice that we have, it, it, the pro and the con is, right, I think we have around 200 to 250 investors for each project, which great, it, which is great because a lot of them, you know, put in just little little chunks and amounts, which is cool that you have this community with you already, um, but we are beholden to those investors, right? Um, so we're, we're really working to make all of our money back so we can make the next one. Well, I was one of the believers and I'm an investor in it, so I'm very excited for you. Yes, thank you, Deb. Thank you. <laughs> um, Dan, let's hear yeah. about you. And eight so, um, The last three films I did um, kind of covered a variety of Funding. My most recent film, Eight Wins, was a you know a micro budget feature film, and my financing plan is how much money do I have in my bank account, and uh, what can I do with it. So um, I wrote the script knowing what my limitations were. The plan was to uh, steal whatever I could in terms of shooting in public. Uh, I, I wouldn't write for a location that I didn't already have control over whether it was my apartment, my office, or a friend's boat. Um, and, I, you know, I said, whatever it costs, I'm going to make a movie for whatever I can. Uh, so, you know, originally I thought it would be a kind of a Robert Rodriguez $5,000 wonder. Um, it didn't end up costing that much. It was a little bit more. But um, in the true Field of Dreams tradition, if you build it, they will come. Uh, along the way, a uh, distributor that uh, distributed our film, uh, The Lost City of Sesame DeMille, said, hey, we'll distribute it for you. So I had distribution in place before uh, the film was completed, which is the first time that's ever happened. Um, and then uh, I picked up a couple of investors along the way um, that, that helped out and was able to find somebody to put in some in-kind services. So... Um, over the five-year period, um, you know, it's a manageable number from my personal bank account, from other people's bank accounts. Um, the film, The Lost City of Sesame the Mill, was kind of a uh, every filmmaker's dream. Uh, the subject matter of archaeology in Hollywood fascinated this, this one person. 
who was particularly wealthy and they said, how much do you need? And here's a check, go do it. Um, that has only happened one other time. And that was on uh, the film Growing Up Smith, where the majority of the budget was written by one person, uh, crazy millionaires. So my tip for finding money is search for crazy millionaires. <laughs> and we love them. You know, it's ironic because both Jonathan and Dan, you guys have the same distributor on your film. So, you know, I'm, you know, like, I mean, a really nice company called Random Media. So, um, you know, I, I just have one other thing I wanted to go back to Alyssa on the standoff. Did you sell any, pre-sell any territories uh, on that? I thought you did. I'm not sure. Yeah, what I did was I had a friend who has a distribution company and I got a letter of intent for them to distribute. So they did take um, foreign on it ahead of time. Unfortunately, that was a blessing and a curse because it obviously made the um, investors feel better, which is why we did it. Um, they had a minimum guarantee that they were going to come up with. And then, you know, the biggest problem is that filmmaking doesn't take an hour and a half. Sometimes it takes a year and a half and if not longer and the world changes. And so this particular company sort of imploded, um, about a, a year and a half to two years into our deal. So then I had to work to get the rights back from them and then give them to somebody else. And that, you know, comes with challenges as well, which are things like, you know, your movie is a little bit older. So now I put it, I just wound up giving the company that was selling my foreign, the domestic, combined the two. And, you know, for me, because I do know the business, I was very lucky that I was able to sort of salvage it. But it was a challenge, but I did pre-sell. And that is, you know, Deb, in, in the future, um, perhaps it's going to come up in another question, but something I do recommend, you know, packaging and pre-selling and finding your distribution ahead of time. Um, I think one of the things that you and I find is when filmmakers come to us looking for distribution strategies, they, you know, spent all this time developing, producing, making their movie, posting it. Some of them haven't even posted yet and they're exhausted and they're broke and they don't have a distribution plan, but they have a lot of people they have to start paying back. And to me, you need to really take care of that little bit of business before you even begin so that you know what you're doing with your movie. Um, as Desiree said, you have to be responsible to your investors, whether they're, you know, on on a, you know, online or they're your uncle because Thanksgiving is coming and you're going <laughs> to he's going to be drunk. He's going to be mad. Um, but, you know, and that that is a thing to, you know, definitely make sure that you are responsible to those people because. You should be. So um, I'm going to kind of throw out this question since Alyssa brought it up, but, you know, like, um, so if any of you guys successfully packaged a film that led to financing, and in that case, you know, what kind of, what level of talent were investors looking for and how did that, you know, help you along the way? I can jump on this if nobody else really wants to or anybody. Okay. Uh, basically my experience, you know, from, from the filmmaker as well as the distribution standpoint is that the level of talent should be the highest humanly possible, um, but it also should be consistent with your budget. 
Um, you know, if you're making a film that's five, you know, $5,000 or $500,000, you're obviously, you know, you're not going to get the greatest level of talent. However, you know, maybe you can cut crazy deals with them to make them exec producers, give them participation and so on and so forth. Um, but, you know, in order to attain distribution, you do have to have names. And what I would recommend is figuring out what genre your film is, who the distributor is, and the budget, and then, you know, do some research and see who's in those movies. You know, you always know if you're making a movie that's a Christmas movie, who your actor is going to be for Hallmark. You know, if you're making an action movie, you know, you can see who those actors are. Um, you know, very rarely does the genre of your movie circumvent cast. So cast, you know, you always have to sort of rely on cast. So the level, I would say never go below C, but always try and do the research to have people that are consistent with your budget. Anybody else want to jump in on this? I think those are very, very good comments for the the type of films that you're making 100%. We looked at it um, completely differently because we are obviously coming from a place where we don't have the same access to casting to have because everybody lives around you. We have to bring people up to Canada. So when we did Paragnus and we did the last film, one of the considerations was is how are we going to spend our money to market the cast that we do have? And how are we going to prop them up and position them in the marketplace? Because now we then have access to cast that love us for helping their careers which you know with something like poor agnes for instance um laura's gotten about eight pictures after and i lined her up with her next one or two connecting her to some other producers and that gave her kind of the the level that she needed to kind of move on in her career but it also keeps getting us traction with that film in terms of the uh the tail on it and for us because we're starting at this very differently we're trying to always look at this as like yes the one part of the budget is making the film but the significant part of the budget that we need to look at in the future as a company is how are we going to release these films ourselves, but not as like independent producers, but like as a traditional distribution platform. Um, so we're like, if we're going to budget for a film X amount of dollars, it's like, how are we going to raise the capital or push the film out with another budget allotment? So we've always looked at it slightly differently and, and that's allowed us to kind of make the decisions and have the autonomy we've had so far uh, with this film and also the next couple of films we have uh, partially financed. It's allowing us to make those decisions differently. But when we went to Berlin and when I've gone to other sales markets, it always is a matter of who do you have? Why are they there? And can you get somebody cheaper who can get you the same traction? And the conversation I always have to have with them is like, well, how are we positioning them in the market? How is the specific actor or performer or talent positioning the film? And is it getting us to where we want to go with the story? Um, so it's a lot of push-pull with the, the buyers is what we found on our end. Mm. Anybody else have a, want to jump in on this? Or um, So I'm going to just, you know, turn to Dan for a second. So, you know, you're, as a, you know, you're an actor, producer, writer, and you're amazingly talented. But as an attorney, do any of your clients come to you and ask you to recommend a structure of, you know, for investment on a film they might be producing? You know, uh, and what would and what kind of advice do you give them? You know, aside from finding the crazy millionaire. Yeah. Well, I, I think all the, the the things that have been mentioned on the panel, uh, Desiree using WeFunder and Alyssa finding huge sales, all good ideas if you can execute them. Um, so that's always the question that I have. 
um, if I do a weave wonder, can I execute it at a level that's going to make it worthwhile? Um, I mean, if you do a weave wonder campaign, you only raise $5,000 of a $500,000 budget. What have you got? Um, same thing with the, you know, kind of with the, uh, the crowdfunding issues. Um, so that's one issue. Um, I mean, the other, um, we were talking about casting a little bit earlier and, 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 and I always warn people, you know, don't lock yourself into a particular talent if you're not absolutely sure that they're the people who are going to raise your money. Because just because they were famous may not work for the people who are actually going to end up selling the film or buying the film in other territories. And if you make a commitment to them, and they're not the right actor for the, the market you're trying to tap, you're in a quagmire because now you have an actor that isn't going to raise money for your project. And if you try to offload the actor, you're going to have bad blood. Um, so that's one concern I have about that. Um, you know, in, court, in terms of a, of a business structure, um, <clears throat> the uh, most Financing models involve setting up an LLC <clears throat> and bringing investors in as members of the LLC so that the cash flows through them um, and whatever tax consequences that might be available throws, flow through to the individual investor. Um, so that's one uh, issue. Um, you know, if you set up an LLC in California, whether you make a nickel or a million bucks, you have to pay $800 a year and you have to file two tax returns every year, irrespective of the amount of business you do. So there are alternative venues where the annual corporate franchise fees are more reasonable, but you need to be careful about how you set that up um, because if the state of California finds out you've set up a, an LLC in, let's say, Wyoming, but you're actually doing business in California, they may come after you for uh, collecting that rear uh, franchise tax or domestication fee. Um, I may be getting too literal, too legal here, but um, these are the things that are popping into my head. Um, I, in terms of what Desiree was saying about protecting your investors and treating them uh, well, I think that's really important that if you're taking other people's money, make your film you really respect them for having whatever lack of judgment to give you money um because uh you don't want to be saying i have lack of judgment yeah well i'm, I'm just kidding little, i'm being a little i'll be here all week so um, it's okay uh, I, my point is that the last thing you want is to be in a lawsuit with securities law because if you piss off one investor, they're going to turn it into a class action lawsuit on behalf of all investors. And if you lose a class action lawsuit, you don't have to pay back that one investor, you have to pay back all the investors. Um, so really treat them well, keep your communications with them frequent and positive. If they ask you questions, respond in a timely manner. Um, I don't know if that answers all the questions, the, the point, but those are some of my thoughts. Anybody else have anything to weigh in here? Or okay, no, well, 
Well, I was, yeah, I just, I wish I had known you, Dan, when I was, when I was setting up my LLC and all that jazz, because everything you're saying is totally correct in terms of, you know, when you start any movie, I think what was a quick learning curve for me is you're starting your own business, right? So, which I think every filmmaker should do, because I think so often what Alyssa was saying too, of, you know, you have the, the production part down, you have, you know how to make the movie, but if you don't know how to raise the money and you don't know how to sell the movie, then you've only got one piece of the puzzle and all three are really, really, really important. So um, what is cool with WeFunder is the way the platform works. I guess I should be their, their marketing woman here, but <laughs> you can talk to all the investors at the same time. They have updates. So you're in constant communication with them. But I think that was huge for both of these projects as I'm becoming, you know, as I'm getting to the point where I'm raising money, millions of dollars for the future films. I now know, I know the market. I knew that if I'm doing a film at a very ultra low budget level at a 200 under 350 grand kind of level that I have a really good shot in making all those, making that back and then some, and everybody's happy. So we can do the next one. And it shows to your investors too, that if you can do something at this level, if you can make something really smart and visually stunning at ultra low budget, then of course, why wouldn't we give those filmmakers and me as a producer the opportunity to do that times two times three? If we've shown you that in COVID, despite all odds, we can make a movie happen. Um, so, yeah. So on WeFunder, you also created a security offering. Is that correct? And, you know, what do you mean by, I mean, we had terms of like the terms where the investors were coming in is they could do 110% of the principal or 120% of the principal. And then it's a net profit split. Usually that's what a lot of the films do. There are quite a few films on there. So if it's something that interests you, you can go on the site and you can check out all the different terms that people did. Um, and you can make the terms either that you're selling equity of the company uh, or in the film, or you can do just debt financing so that they don't own the company, but they're going. you structure out the terms that they're going to get back. Is that what you mean by the yeah. offer? Well, there was also like a lot of paperwork I had to sign when I did my investment. So that makes sense. I think they, you know, Dan will, will say it's all about, you know, it is a risk, right? Every, I think that's huge. Um, that filmmaking, right, is a riskier investment that you can make. But if you have a story that people are excited about, if you're telling something differently than they've seen before, um, people want to be involved. I think investors, especially with WeFunder or we were talking about relatives, people want to be a part of something that's important and that speaks to them. And I think you're, you're grabbing those people, not because they're going to get rich from it, but because they want to be a part of something that can change the world. I mean, as sort of like, you know, filmmaking artists over here, the musical theater degree over here, but like you're, you're getting people because they care about it. Um, but yes, with that said, they have to sign a lot of paperwork. Um, because it's all with the SEC. Maybe Dan could talk about that a little bit more. It's all about the Security Exchange Commission and, and us telling them that we're going to do everything in our power to make money back and then a lot more. Um, but if, you know, what we were talking about with, with companies collapsing <laughs> in, in a very tumultuous world, um, just making sure that you're protected, that everyone's protected. Anybody have anything else to speak to them? Deb, can I jump in back to casting for one second? 
Sure. Uh, basically, I think that one thing that you can do to help yourself when it does come to that is befriend distributors. You know, there, there's a whole list of them out there. Go to AFM. And even if they're not going to jump in on your film right away, you can do a litmus test with them and they can tell you, you know, hey, if I get so-and-so in on this, is that valuable? And they, you know, use them as a partner early on so that they can give you, you know, input and feedback on who you're looking at. And I think that that's probably, you know, the number one way to really do it is just always talk about distribution early so that you are, you know, distribution proof. Right. And that was something we did with Desi's, you know, um, fundraise too, because, you know, I'm her publicist and we wrote something correct about, you know, like our distribution plan. Yeah. It was on, you know, that was, a, that, you know, was really probably very necessary. I mean, why don't you elaborate on that too, Des? Um, yeah, actually, I want to go back to what Alyssa said too, because I, as I have a question going to AFM, I'm also planning on going with future projects. I'd love to ask the panel, and Jonathan might know a lot about this too, of what to bring to AFM if you have a project that's in pre-production, like if you have, you know, a little bit of cast, um, the script, do you bring a sizzle reel, all of that whole, I would love to ask that. Yes. And then, I'll, then I'll answer your question though. <laughs> Yeah, all of those things. Okay, and, he, and you bring the script fully. Well, no, so I, wouldn't, I, would, I wouldn't do. That. I would bring like a one sheet. I would bring, okay. you know, you can have like in an EPK, you could have your sizzle reel and everybody in there. But um, you know, like I would, uh, you know, that's what I would do to begin with to start right. engaging in a conversation. Does any, you know, Jonathan? Well, all you guys, you know, we all attended, so why doesn't everybody share? Yeah, you know, I, um, I'm going to be there this year for a few days. I think people have a misconception of what that, that market really is. Um, I mean, if you're looking to find connections to distributors, going to the market's great. You're going to meet a lot of people. But the reality is the actual deal makers are not going to have time to look at your stuff. And if you give them copies, you go there the day after the festival closes and look in the dumpsters and you're just going to see piles and piles of one sheets, mm -hmm. CDs, DVDs, scripts that they're just not going to take it. So if you're going to go to the market, it's really more of a networking intelligence gathering type of operation where you can meet people. I mean, most people come down around 4.30 or 5. So if you're in the lobby, there's a lot of activity, a chance to network. Um, lunchtime, people come down from the rooms. But most of the time, the people in the rooms have their meetings set up weeks in advance before the event. So the likelihood that you're going to get in to talk to them uh, is not great. And they're, not, they're looking to sell. So if you're not going to help them sell, they're really not going to be motivated to say, hey, let me give you a 15-minute spot that I could be using to sell my my project or my wares to somebody else. Um, the other thing I would suggest, you know, the film business is going on 24 seven, 365. So just because the AFM is in actual mode, active mode, you can do your research. You can reach out to these people every day, every month, irrespective of whether the film market's in action or not. So, you know, what I tell people is you're trying to get 
distributors' attention or intelligence now is mm-hmm. a really bad time because all the distributors are putting together their shows. Mm-hmm. So they're not really going to be interested in looking at new projects. The time to approach these folks is when the market isn't happening. So, you know, well, that's good either too. after the market's <laughs> over or before the market happens. And I'm not talking like a week. I'm talking like six or seven months before yeah. the market. So that you can, they'll have the time if they're interested to speak to you. They'll have the time when they're not under the pressure of trying to sell and close deals. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention, um, oh, I forgot it. Okay. Uh, but, you know, do your homework. Uh, there's a lot of resources. The, the, uh, if the folks who run the AFM, they have a website. All of their members are on the website. All the contact information is on the website. All the email addresses are on the website. All the films they're selling are on the website. If you do your research, you can get a pretty good idea of what a specific distributor's niche is. And if it matches up with your film, then they're on your target list. Um, yeah, so. No, that's- Sorry, go ahead. I was just saying that's amazing. Just as a filmmaker, yeah. it's just interesting because I was I was talking to another friend just the other day, and they're like, "You should go to AFM." And I'm like, "When is that?" So you're right. <laughs> it's like in two weeks. Yeah. So it's been it's been really cool to deep dive. And you're right that with um, the film catalog, they've got everybody on there. So it's really just going through making a targeted list of like fifty or sixty of those sales agents and distributors, and then just you know, old fashioned uh, cold call, cold email, respectfully, of course um and strategize there but it's the information is there it's just making a plan to use it and and to the best of your ability it's cool you know i used to go to the markets all the time and just get the trades from them because all of the papers that they're putting out whether it's screen whether it's you know variety and the reporter and so on have all the deals and the advertisements about who's selling what and who's making what which I think is really the most telling and interesting is, you know, figuring out who's selling films that look like yours, who's in them, um, the deals that are happening and what they look like. Um, The other thing is that in the last probably somewhere between five and 10 years, AFM started making less money. And so they started doing a lot of seminars and a lot of sort of workshops and things for people who want to come pitch. And I think, you know, what what Dan was saying is that it's very true. And it's just a little bit of a misnomer to, you know, if you pay for this stuff, you may get access into some sort of pitching kind of form or something like that. But those are the things if you do want to try and sell, try to go to those. They have a lot of seminars. Um, Usually it's you know, people are just looking for that, you know, magic golden bullet of how do I sell my film and how to, how to raise money as though there's actually one way. <laughs> uh, but, but it is interesting because that, that market, you know, they do sort of bill as a creative person go pitch because they're trying to get more, you know, more people to go and spend money and buy badges. But if you do buy a badge, then really focus on, no getting a lay of the land and going to those events, go to the cocktail parties and things like that and look at it more for that. And then then one last thing is Desiree, um, pitch decks. Pitch decks are becoming more important. You know, you can make them and just PDF them, you know, send them to people later. I wouldn't, you know, as as mm-hmm. Dan 
saying everything is in the trash. So wait until people decompress two weeks after the market, if you met them there and they said, hey, send me that, mm-hmm. give them, you know, give them two weeks to come up for air. Also, if you do buy a badge, you can actually go sit by the pool these days. So that's another advantage. You know, if you don't, they used to let everybody buy the pool and you could order food and stuff. Now it's like, if you have a badge, you can go. So, you know, for $250 for the day, mm-hmm. you can have pool access. Um, Jonathan, do you have anything else to weigh in? Because I know you're coming down for it. Yeah, the... What I always found running um, festival level PR, I'm sure you had as well, is uh, handling some of the sales side and the, and the acquisition side is that because it's a, a relationship business and everybody harks on the fact that it's a relationship business, you need to be in the room with these people. So if you're going to markets, don't go to sell the project, go to sell who you are, go to sell what your vision is in the future, because these people will remember that and they'll remember the personality you put forward. Even if you bring a project and that project, you know, uh, ends up in the dumpster, if you kind of hit them with the right moment and who you are and it makes sense, they're going to remember you and answer your call next time. And that's basically it. It's just uh, think of it as marketing yourself. I'm, I'm, I mean, actors are very familiar with that and a lot of performers are familiar with that. But on the business side of it, most people think of it as just like we have to grind out the numbers and get deals in the door. But it's like, no, you have to have those relationships established so they trust that your judgment's going to be good going in and you're not going to do anything stupid to compromise their jobs as well. And that's pretty much what it is, especially in this market when it's so um, uh, ephemeral. The, the ideas and the content of what's happening is so quick and it just disappears. It's not like a physical good. Um, they need to know and trust that you are going to make good decisions with the creativity you're putting out into the market. Anybody else want to weigh in or so let's just have one. Oh, go ahead, Dan. Um, yeah, I remembered what I forgot. Um, so <laughs> uh, back to the issue of investors and finding investors, uh, you know, uh, when I was trying to raise money for my film, I would ask people and I would talk to, you know, financial uh, 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 sales people, services people. I say, hey, do you know anybody who wants to invest in a movie? And they say, oh yeah, I know somebody who's in the business. I said, no, I don't want somebody in the movie business. <laughs> people in the movie business do not invest in movies. The person I want is the person who has their name on the masthead of the local opera or the local museum. You want to look for people who have an interest in promoting uh a culture or an art or your your movie is a very specific type of of uh, social uh, subject matter. You want to look for people who want to advocate for that. The other thing is is try and find people who want to brag. I mean, what you're really selling in a movie is a sizzle. You want somebody who wants to go to a cocktail party instead of talking about how he conquered. <laughs> he's got his name on a movie so that he's the star of the cocktail party. That's how you sell investments for movies. Because the financial issue, the financial projection, the reality is a lot of films do not recover, recoup their budgets. It's just a sad fact. Maybe you disagree with me, but the, at the end of the day, what you're selling is a sizzle of having their name on a movie and the possibility of going on the red carpet. Sounds fun. Anybody else want to add to that or any other thoughts on that? So I'm going to just, before we you know, go into a different set of questions, 
you know, does anybody else want to share how to attract that crazy millionaire, you know, with your project, you know, from anything you've seen? Any way you can. Um, you know, I, I think that I used to hear about like this consortium of dentists in Wyoming who would pool their money. I think what Dan was saying about, you know, it, you're selling the sizzle, you're making it sexy. Um, I have had a family who um, came and financed a movie that was OxyClean, the laundry detergent. <laughs> and um, for that wonderful um, opportunity, the man who happened to have gone to film school wanted to direct the movie. Um, in that instance, it made sense. Um, many, many, you know, and, and that kind of in my eyes comes over time. I actually many, many years ago had an investor who wanted to put money into a movie if their son could be the star. That son happened to be an up and coming army hammer. Um, which then I was kicking myself in the butt for passing on. Now I'm glad. Uh, but, you know, those are those are things, you know, that happen. So dentists, OxyClean, whatever it is, and you have to make a choice as a um, filmmaker where your lines are. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what are you willing to give up in order to get that money? Um, which for me is a sliding scale, depending on um, probably how well I slept the night before in my mood. Uh, but that's, you know, that's just kind of a thing is you do, you know, you can get it from all over the place. I, I do want to jump in because I have both did finance films and it helped that as well as brought in financing. Um, the one thing I think a lot of uh, filmmakers when they're first starting out, they don't really consider is like you, it, when you're raising capital, those people are buying into you. So you have to look at both their emotional needs and their rational needs. So the first thing is like, how are they emotionally connecting with you as the creative driver behind it? And how are they connecting emotionally with the subject matter and the story and who you're going to bring into this? Very key things, because that bypasses a lot of the rationality to get them to sign. But then the other side of it is the rationality side. It's like, I only have $10,000 to spend on this, you know, the buyer saying, but at the same time, the buyer's not thinking, oh, I need another 30 or 40 or $50,000 in, in tax uh, relief from one of my businesses. So as a someone who's looking at us as a producer, you have to provide them those kind of solutions. It's like, yes, I can go to an individual and say, okay, give me 10 grand. Great. That's your threshold of risk. And the other conversation is like, do you have something you need to write off somewhere? Do you have something you want, you want to juggle in to bring this budget up to make this a really, really happen, but it doesn't hurt your pocketbook. And those are the kind of conversations that you kind of have to learn to have as you're doing, getting into the business. It's that rational side of the buying because they are buying something from you. You're not selling them something so much as they're turning around and saying, I need this from you. I need this emotional justification or I need this rational justification. If you can present both of those in tandem, um, like I did to myself when I financed Poor Agnes because I did need the tax relief and also I want to get the business off the ground, um, that was an easy decision. That's yeah. Wow. You should write that down, Jonathan, and put that and, and spread that. That is so smart of just breaking it down between 
the rational and emotional. And yeah, once again, going back to WeFunder, I think it was a great training ground of these were all people I did not know and what is great. And I think it is a good tool for someone that's maybe looking to, you know, isn't ready to raise millions of dollars, but wants to do an independent film of what's nice is you do have this network with that platform of all investors in all different fields. You've got, you've got medicine, you've got technology, you've got uh, alcohol, you've got entertainment. So that was really cool. And where I started to strategize with my business side of, okay, I've got this film about divorce. I've got this film about women. I've got this, it's empowering women. It's women behaving badly, which has always been something I'm, I'm very outspoken and passionate about and seeing more women on screen that are true and real, very Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Okay, I'm going to go for all these people that invested in this cool like cannabis drink, right? Because I think they're going to kind of align with what I'm doing. And I even went to one point, um, there was another company on there didn't end up working out, but called Bliss Divorce. That was a company that was uh, a startup that was making divorce easier and not with a lawyer that you could do on an app. And we were talking for a second about partnering. So those kind of ideas that are kind of out of the box and finding people that once again, yeah, maybe aren't in the film industry, um, but, but align with what you're trying to say, then that feeds into that emotional needs and emotional sign. Sorry, to that end, what you're also doing, which I think is terrific, and I think a lot of people are interested in, is you're putting together potentially like a mailing list or a demographic. Yeah. And I think what you're able to prove to a distributor, which I think is important, is you were able to raise $300,000 just from anybody on the web which means that there is a built-in audience for what you're doing. And if people are willing to put that money in, they are saying, you know, something important, you know, it's, you know, the equivalent of how many followers does your movie have on Instagram or whatever, TikTok, you know, and I think that that's another side of it is we have to promote our films long before, um, you know, we're even trying to sell it so that we can say to a distributor, well, look, I've got 300,000 people invested in it and I've got 1.2 million followers here and the lead actress has seven, you know, mm -hmm. 100,000 followers and so on and so forth. That is something that I don't love, but it is a fact of filmmaking today. And, you know, the other thing that I think, you know, Jonathan, you're doing really well with because Canada is so excellent at tax credits and incentives and soft money is the U.S. is definitely starting to pick up on that more and more all the time. And though I like shooting in California because I can sleep in my own bed at night and this is where I have a lot of friends and resources, but you can go to New Jersey and get 30% now. And you can go to different parts of our country. And if you're able to say, I've got $300,000 here, I've got another hundred out of New Jersey, now I have 400, you can go to an investor and say to them, hey, I've already got 400,000. If you give me 400, you're still getting all your money back from first money because I don't have to pay that four back right away or you know, however you do it. But I think that those are really important things and aligning with like bliss divorce is, is kind of genius. And maybe, you know, even if they don't give you money, maybe they can give you outreach. Um, and that's worth something. Thank you. You've been listening to Best in Fest. Uh, this is a part one of a part two uh, series on this panel that we put on for the La Femme International Film Festival. So take a listen for part two uh, next week. 
And don't forget to like us and pass us on to your friends. You've been listening to Best and Fest.